Well, okay, let's dive into God's Word together. I invite you to grab a Bible um, or a device with a Bible on it uh, so that you can open up the Scriptures there for yourself and study along. We're in 1 Samuel 17, and we are in um, one of the most familiar stories in all of the Bible, definitely the most familiar story in the life of David in 1 and 2 Samuel, an incredible story um, that is given um, much uh, precedence. It's, 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 it takes up a, a good bit of space here. It's a long story. Uh, with much detail um, that the writer wants us to see because it's such an important story and a turning point in the life of David. And of course, I'm talking about the story of David and Goliath, a story so well known uh, that uh, that we that, that that it's it's known not just within Christianity, uh, but it, it's 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 known uh, throughout our culture. Um, it's kind of a part of our cultural lexicon of, of, about the underdog and things of that nature, as people tend to use it. You know, as a kid, I remember. Um, watching a, a play, I don't know how old I was, but it was a, a VBS play. It was I was at a vacation Bible school at the little the church we attended, and um, there I remember seeing this play being acted out uh, of David and Goliath. And the, you know, I don't know how old I was, but these kids were older than me that were in the play. And there was this one kid who was. Um, larger than most of the other kids and one kid that was probably small for his age and of course he played David and then the kid that was the bigger kid for his age he played Goliath and man they acted this thing out and I, I was it somehow had some sort of impact on me it, it captivated me in that way um unlike church drama has ever done and uh you know and I think about that and I go why is that why do I remember that scene why well, I don't remember much a lot else about those early vacation bible schools some things here and there you know about the cookies and the kool-aids and kool-aid and all that kind of stuff but oh, but that play really it kind of it stands out in my mind that 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 scene not the whole thing but just that scene why is that it's because this is a powerful, powerful story, I believe, and it, it does. If you grew up in church, it's captivated uh, your mind from a very early age, and it's a very powerful story, and it's a story that resonates uh, with us because on some level, we all feel like we've experienced it in some way uh, or something like it. We know what it's like, in other words, to be intimidated or to be fearful or to go up against unthinkable odds. Uh, many know what it's like to have something huge in your life that you don't feel like you can get past or get over, uh, something that needs to be defeated, but, uh, but you don't know what to do. Uh, like Israel, we've all faced enemies and giants, and we've experienced defeat. And we all love uh, to read hero stories, right? And we're drawn to that. We, we love the hero story, and we like to think maybe that we can be the hero. But this story ultimately reveals our need for a hero is really what it does. It reveals that we, we need a hero. Uh, we need rescue. Then we need to live in light of that rescue. Uh, and we need, to, uh, we need to really live by uh, incredible, bold faith in the God who has rescued us and who rescues. So, so look with me. I'm going to start in verse 2, and we're just going to kind of make our way through 1 Samuel chapter 17 starting in verse 2 and it says and Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines and the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them so we'll pause there the idolatrous Philistines okay these people worshiped false gods were a main enemy one of the main enemies of Israel during this particular time that you'll see here especially with uh, in, with Saul and with with David in their reigns and so they were an idolatrous people who occupied the land uh, that God had promised Israel and they were they were warriors renowned for their battle skills I mean if you go 
look it up. You can you can see that that, that was one of the things they're kind of renowned for. They had iron weapons. As one person, uh, one, one book noted that they had iron weapons before Israel had iron weapons. They so they kind of had some renown with uh, that and with their technology. And so the the threat of the Philistines ultimately helped lead um, to Israel having a king. Right? You go back and you look in uh, the uh, chapter nine, I believe it is. Um, Israel's um, crying out for a king, and God gives them a king and talks about rescuing them from the hand of the Philistines. Now, the valley of Elah was a large valley with elevated hills and mountains uh, on each side about a mile apart. So you can imagine that uh, these mountain sides uh, with like a, a mile-wide valley um, between them. So you can picture that large scene with the Israelite army on one side as the picture is being set up here at the beginning of the chapter and the Philistine army on the other side. Verse 4 says, And there came from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. So this word champion there, it's the idea is that he's a representative soldier. He was likely their best fighter. Six cubits and a span was nine feet and nine inches tall. This dude is huge, okay? This is a, this is a large man, okay? Uh, hence, we still to this day talk about something being a Goliath. I mean, he is a large Man, and then verse 5 says, he had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield bearer went before him. What a picture. So imagine this, nine foot, nine inch tall man wearing an armor that weighed, the, the weight here is actually, they say is approximately 125 pounds is what his armor weighed approximately. So he basically it weighs as much as probably what David weighed. And the 600 shekel spearhead, that's about 15 pounds. And so he has a, a, a imagine that scene and the strength it took. This large man with the, the head of his spear weighs 15 pounds, right? His, his armor weighs 125 pounds. And then he's got this shield bearer going before him. This guy would have been carrying a, a shield that was the size of a human being. And so he's marching in front of Goliath with this large shield, providing Goliath with extra protection. Quite the scene. It's a picture of someone who is indestructible. This guy's like four feet taller than everyone. He's strong enough to carry 125 pounds of armor. His, he, he, he's being shielded by an, another human being with a shield. Who wants to fight that, right? The whole image is meant to induce fear. He looks unbeatable. He looks like a killing machine. He is a war machine, is really what he is, a human war machine. Look at verse 8. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now this is important. What Goliath is proposing here is what um, scholars have called representative combat. In other words, he's saying, look, uh, each army will send forth a representative. They will fight. 
And if this soldier wins, this warrior wins, the whole army wins, the whole nation wins. If this one wins, this one wins. You lose, the whole, the whole people lose. It's a called representative combat. Now, how does Saul and how does Israel respond? Absolute fear and dismay. The word there for dismay can mean to be shattered. <laughs> it's like they're shattered with fear, shattered in dismay. Nobody wants to fight this guy. He looks unbeatable. It seems to be certain death. And on top of that, if you lose, everybody loses. If he wins, their whole nation wins. Their whole army wins. Verse 16 says, For 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. So think about that for a second. 40 days, twice a day, he comes out and does this. That's 80 times. 80 times this guy comes out, makes this challenge, stands there, basically mocks and taunts them, and nobody steps up to the plate. And they listen to this 80 times, 40 days, twice a day, and they're just faithless. They're paralyzed. They're afraid. Goliath we see here being just persistent in his evil Israel is persistent in their fear and God is we see is being patient in the midst of all of this verses 17 and 18 tell us that David is sent on an errand by his dad to take some food to his brothers and check on their well-being so that's where we're going to pick up in verse 20 and David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Do you hear the fear in all this? <laughs> have, you, have you seen this man right there? Just, they're overcome with fear at just the visible presence of Goliath. I mean, they, they literally run away when they see him. This is an army of men, and they run away when they see him. This is, uh, they're terrified. Notice what else. Saul has offered a reward, it says, for whoever will kill this guy. Saul wants him dead, but Saul's willing to do this, right? He offers freedom to the family. He offers one of his daughters as a bride for whatever uh, soldier will, uh, will take him on and will take him out. Verse 26, And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. So David, he kind of overhears, he's, he's basically like, what was that you said? What are they going to do? I mean, what's going on here? And who is this guy? Right? They look at Goliath and they say, have you seen this man with fear? David asks, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Why does he say it that way? Uh, he's pointing out that he's focusing on the fact that this guy is not one of God's covenant people, that this guy is an idolater, that this guy is ultimately an enemy of God, and, and, and he's defying the armies of what? The, not just any army, the armies of the living God. Israel's army looks at Goliath in light of themselves, and David sees Goliath in light of God and who God is and their identity as the people of God see to David Goliath looked tiny next to God uh, he, he's got a big view of God 
a big view of God and his promises and who God is and God's power. That's how David views God. But so that makes Goliath seem less significant. Maybe Goliath looked so large, so huge. I mean, he was a big guy. It looked so daunting. Maybe because at this point, Israel and Saul, maybe God seems small to them. See, faith puts things in proper perspective. Fear and faith will each cause you to view the world differently. If you view the world through the lens of fear, like Israel did and like Saul did, I mean, everything gets, I mean, it's magnified. All the problems get magnified. But when we view it through the lens of faith, not just any faith, faith in God of the Bible, faith in the redemptive, saving God of the Bible, it puts things in proper perspective, and we see that God is greater. Verse 28. Now, Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to them, so he overhears David, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. So here, Eliab, David's oldest brother, the one, remember, that passes before Samuel, and Samuel thinks, Oh, this must be the the guy that God wants me to anoint to be, the future king of Israel. And God says, No. I see the heart, and I have not chosen that guy. <laughs> well, we're seeing a little bit about Eliab's heart, it seems, right here. He's Mr. Critical here, right? He's angry. Maybe, it seems, maybe out of jealousy of some sort. We, it's, it's hard to say, but he's just being very accusatory of David. He criticizes his responsibility. Oh, we're those few sheep. You, see, you heard a snark in that? And, and, and he judges his heart under the evil of your heart. He's actually been sent by their dad to, to bring him food and to check on him. And Eliab is a reminder to us that everyone gets criticized, right? And there can be, there's healthy criticism. There's a way to uh, healthily critique something. And then there's unhealthy, ungodly criticism. And David shows us how to handle it when there's an unfair, ungodly type of criticism. What does he do? He, he walks away. I mean, I know there's always things we can learn, but David's, David, David's occupied by something else here. He's concerned. There's, there's, a, bit, there's, there's a lot going on here. And something in David's mind, something very big is happening here when he sees what's happening between Israel and between this Philistine giant. He's not going to let Eliab prevent him um, from figuring out what's going on here. He's not going to get distracted. Verse 31, when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul. And he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. So Saul and the Israelite army, they look at Goliath and they see this unbeatable giant. And so David looks at Goliath and he sees a tiny enemy of God. And so Saul looks at David, and he sees someone who doesn't stand a chance because Goliath is just too big, he's too much. There's no way that David stands a chance here. And, and from a human perspective, he's right. I mean, David's a shepherd, Goliath is a war machine, right? In a sense, Saul is saying, man, he has forgotten about more wars than you've ever fought in. David's brave, and he's courageous. 
We see that, right? It's obvious. He's, a, he's brave and courageous in this moment. I'll go. I'll fight him. But why is he so brave? Why is he so courageous? Look at verse 34. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from, from a flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine should be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. So David here starts talking about his experience. You see that? I'm more prepared than you think, Saul. I've killed lions and bears, right? Watch this enemy of God. He'll be no different than the lions and no different than the bears. But the real source of David's confidence is not his skills, experience with his skill set. It's his experience with God. Notice he says, the Lord who delivered me. See, David understood it wasn't simply his great skills as a shepherd. His great skill uh, with a weapon that enabled him to take out the lion or the bear. He understood that even in those moments, the Lord was protecting him and the Lord had given him the victory. So it wasn't so much his past experience with his personal ability and skills that he's talking about here. It's his experience with God. And he's confident that God will be with him in this battle because God has been with him in the battle previous against those animals. So his courage comes from his faith in God. It was a courageous faith. It was rooted in the power and in the promises of God. Verse 38, then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried to, in vain to go for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. So Saul tried to get David to wear his armor, right? You see that picture here. And Saul's um, unwilling to go himself, but he's willing to rent out his armor for free, right? Real man's man here, right? Real brave king. Um, yeah, hey, I won't go, but you go, you know, since you're risking everything, you can wear my armor. Remember, he's much larger uh, than David, most likely. He's taller than everybody in Israel. And David's not used to wearing armor like that, so that's not going to work. And David's not really dependent on um, human ingenuity and technology here, right? His faith and his trust is in the Lord. And notice David's weapon of choice. Some have noted that there may have been some strategy here, right? David was smaller, but Goliath's armor and size uh, made him less mobile. And so he's geared up with all the right technology for hand-to-hand combat, Goliath is. But David, uh, with his sling, he's chosen a weapon that allows him to utilize mobility and, uh, and not have to engage in hand-to-hand combat, So, which is interesting. You know, and I always thought of these... Um, these stones um, is like little pebbles. As a, as a kid, I had a slingshot. I don't know if you ever had one of those as a kid. I had one of those that you could like brace on your arm, man, and I think you could buy that thing, put little rocks in it, man. That thing would shoot stuff. I mean, like, you know, I don't know, really fast. Uh, and, and I had one of those as as a kid, and so I always um, pictured the kind of, you know, the kind of rock, like I might would pick up and use just a little uh, small rock there, but I actually read that, uh, that most likely the rocks that they use in these slings in this day were more the size of a tennis ball. Could have been up to that size, so think about that for a moment. That this could have been a rock the size of a tennis ball, right? And so that ex- it explains why this was, uh, 
um, not just some uh, dinky weapon, uh, but a pretty serious one. When you think that David was skilled in using it, it was something he had probably used um, in, de- in defending the sheep. And, um, and so he's going to be slinging that thing here in a moment, um, hurling it at Goliath's head. Let's look at verse 41. And the Philistine, Goliath, moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Man, this dude is nasty, right? Now, let me ask you something. What did God promise Abraham in Genesis? He says, I will bless those who will bless you. And I will curse those who curse you. And here is Goliath cursing not only Abraham's descendant, not only one of Israel, but God's anointed, one God has chosen to be king. And he is literally calling a curse down upon himself. He's inviting death upon himself with this. And Can you imagine that the scene here is little David goes up against this giant man who's got another man standing in front of him helping defend him. And he points out, probably seeing David's shepherd stick, you know, you come with me with, with, with sticks? Maybe he doesn't even see at this point the sling. One scholar actually noted how to an Israelite to be unburied and exposed to the birds was considered worse than death itself, right? It, it, it was just, it was, it was, it was not, it, it, that, that was, that, that, that's an, him saying that. It's kind of an intimidating sort of thing. Is Not only am I going to kill you, but I'm going to disgrace you. Um, in, in doing so. So he's taunting and insulting David in very profane ways. And in verse 45, it says, Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Oh, I love this. David is like, <laughs> You're mocking my stick. How about your man-made technology you think that's a match for god so you you think that i'm coming to you with this stick i'm coming you're coming to me with these man-made weapons i'm actually coming to you it's really not about the weapons i'm coming to you in the name of the lord god uh, the lord of hosts the god of the armies of israel and you've defied this god david realizes something that goliath has not merely offended him not merely offended israel goliath has offended god and david is concerned with God's name, God's glory. David loves God. It's been noted that it is likely that this is the first time David has heard God's people spoken about this way, that God defied in this way, that he may have never heard something like this before. He's not not been a man of battle up to this point, it doesn't seem. He's been out keeping sheep. He's been among Israelites who wouldn't have spoken spoken about God and, and God's people in this way. And it angers him. He loves God. It bothers him deeply, and he wants to see something done. Verse 46, this day the Lord will deliver you. This is David picking up again with David. David continues talking to Goliath. Verse 46, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Wow. (laughs) 
So David can talk smack too, right? And David's is not rooted in self-confidence. It's rooted in God-confidence. It's faith in God here. Verses 46 and 47 reveal David's motive. That all the earth may know. That's the missional implication here. That there is a God in Israel. This isn't about David. It's about God and his glory. That all the assembly may know. That's all of Israel. They may know that Yahweh saves. He doesn't need sword. He doesn't need spear to do so. He doesn't need our help. He doesn't need human means. God saves by his own power. However God chooses to save, God saves. The battle belongs to him. He's the victor. He's the one who wins the wars. He's the one who fights our battles. David is saying, this victory is going to reveal something about God to the world and his people. This story, it's not primarily about the great bravery of David. It's about the glory and the salvation of the God of the Bible. Look at verse 48. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and he took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone. And he struck the Philistine and killed him. And there was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and he stood over the Philistine and he took his sword and he drew it out of its sheath and he killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of, uh, the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shaharim as far as Gath and Ekron and the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem and he put his armor in his tent. Wow. Now the story goes on where Saul is just like, who is this? You know, I got to know more about this guy. Well, he's about to, for one, he's about to give his uh, daughter to him in in, in marriage, um, and um, and just I mean, it's, it, David really begins to rise in prominence here uh, as, as the story begins to unfold. Uh, everything begins to change as David slays the giant. He decapitates the giant. Goliath is no more. The enemy of God was defeated that day by the anointed one of God. What happens next? Well, God's people courageously and brave all of a sudden they're now pursuing the enemy they're, they're not they're no longer cowering in fear they're brave they're bold they plunder the camp in light of god's victory they start behaving like victors david won so they won remember representative battle the story has biblical and messianic implications. Remember, David has been chosen to be king, and Israel is God's chosen people. And here the king has once again, the, the first king, Saul, has once again neglected his role. And Israel is in need of saving, and God sends his chosen king, David, who we just saw in chapter 16, anointed by God to rescue them, to step in, to win for them. And this will be a, a landmark moment in David's life and in Israel's. Everything changes after this. Uh, it's a tipping point. David is going to go from a shepherd boy after killing this giant to being a, like a, he's going to become like a, a hero and then a, a war hero. And, and Saul's going to become more and more jealous of him and everything's going to change. And ultimately, David's going to become king and the messianic line is going to flow down from him. So this is about God. It's about God's people. It's about God's salvation. And yeah, it, it's got some implications for us. So I want to share three life applications from this story for you. Number one, we face very real enemies, challenges, and difficulties. Let me say that. One of the reasons we read this story and it resonates so much, well, we, well we've all got Goliath. Well, there's a sense in which 
we do. Right? There's a reason it, re- it resonates. Humanity feels like we've lived these kind of stories. We face challenges, difficulties, and even enemies all the time. We, we have felt fear. We have felt intimidation. And Goliath is an enemy of God in this story, coming to war against the people of God. And he appears as an insurmountable challenge to the people of God. And God's people, listen, have always faced threats throughout Old Testament and New Testament. They've always faced challenges, and they've always had enemies. And the Bible teaches us in the New Testament where our en- what our enemies really are. In, in Ephesians 6.12 it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our real war, we come to understand, is spiritual. It's spiritual. And the threat of sin and death and hell hangs over the life of every sinner since the fall. Every sinner. And every believer, every believer, Wars against the world and wars against the flesh and wars against the devil. And we know we can face persecutions and trials and tragedies that can seem absolutely insurmountable in this life. And we need to remember that the real giant in the life of people in our own life is sin leading to death and hell. And it's Satan, our real enemy. See, it's spiritual. That's the bigger issue. It's, it's bigger than the financial issues or the personality hang-ups. The core problem humanity faces is spiritual. It's the problem of all problems. Remember David said that all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. The story reminds us where real victory comes from. The story points us to God and that brings us to number two. We need a champion to rescue us. Listen. When you read the story, who do you gravitate to and identify with and assume is like supposed to be you in the story? We tend to do that with stories, right? Like I watch my kids sometimes, and, and when they're watching uh, TV, they'll actually talk to each other, and they'll, and, and they'll be like, hey, who are you? I'm going to be so-and-so. I'm going to be so-and-so. We, we kind of like naturally want to kind of picture ourselves in the story, and we gravitate towards David. We run to the hero, right? As a kid, when I watched Superman or I watched the Hulk on TV, I probably, you know, I, I, when, it, when it was over, I wanted to pretend to be them. I wanted to be the hero, right? We instinctively identify that way. It's just kind of human nature, the champion, right? We don't want to think of ourselves as weak. We want to be the hero. But see, Christianity begins with realizing that you aren't the hero. You aren't the rescuer. You're the one in need of being rescued. We're the one in distress. And here, we need to understand, we are a lot more like, on, uh, typically, we're more in the position of Israel and Saul and even Eliab. <laughs> we got a lot in common with them. Before we can find some way to identify with David, we need to recognize our, our identification with, with them, that we have failed to seek and obey God like Saul, that we have been unfaithful, and we have cowered in fear like Israel, that we're not naturally even brave about the things of God. In fact, we tend to prejudge the motives of those we fear may be better and braver than us like Eliab. If I was to say, hey, let's all meet at North Park today, and then we're going to go out, and uh, we're going to go out to the lake, and uh, we're all going to take turns walking up to people and uh, sharing our faith with them and inviting them uh, to repent and believe the gospel. I wonder how many people watching at home right now would show up. I wonder if I did it with the, our congregation on Sunday morning. How many would say, let's go, and we'd go out there and do it. How many would be so brave to do it? Here's my point. Many would have their heart drop in our chest, wouldn't we? We, we wrestle with, with fear. We're, we naturally 
are intimidated. We, courage doesn't tend to come natural to us. Now, some people maybe are more so than others, but the point is, we're not primarily David. We're primarily Israel. <laughs> That's why we wrestle with more. In our struggle with sin and with worry and with fear, do you feel like a champion, right? Do you feel like you can just kind of do it all? Like all you need is some, some rocks and you can go out there and do it, right? How, how many struggles did you have in your life uh, five years ago, ten years ago that are still there today that you're still battling? Are you whipping sin every day? Are you always super courageous in the face of trials and challenges? See, when you read this story, we shouldn't first simply think, I need to be braver. We should first think, I need a savior. Uh, like them, I need a champion. <laughs> I need someone to represent me in the battle. Before we can identify with David as an example, we need to identify with Israel and recognize that David points us to Christ as a, as a type. Uh, Spurgeon pointed this out, Charles Spurgeon, that David here is both a type of Christ and is an example to the Christian. And I, I think that's true. We need to recognize that. We, we need a champion. It's been pointed out that the person that should have been fighting Goliath that day was Saul. When you really think about the story, he was the king, he was the leader, he was to deliver them from the Philistines. But Saul abdicates this. He, he looks like a king, he even looks like a champion, right? But he fails to deliver. He's cowering in fear with the rest of the Israelites. And we need to beware of the Sauls that we can prop up in our own life. Beware of looking to things that look like they can deliver us, that look like they that promise deliverance, but don't. Idols, false hopes, things that, that, that we, we look to, that we may, we'll trust. Maybe this will deliver us. Maybe this will help me, but, but it won't. We have a tendency to look to the wrong things to rescue us, to help us, to deliver us. It's a human problem. And as Christians, we can struggle with this too when we get our eyes off the Lord. Think about the story. God's anointed when David, he doesn't look like a champion. He doesn't even fight with the most conventional way. He, 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 his own brother criticizes him. He's doubted by Saul. He is mocked by the enemy. But with great faith in God, he slays the giant, saves God's people. And it's even been pointed out, he won a bride. Right? That was the, one of the prizes. And David, throughout the scriptures, he, he, his, he's a type of Christ. He's pointing us. When we read the Old Testament, we should see that uh, many times he's pointing us. God will use him to point us to the Lord Jesus Christ, to a better, a better king to come. Right? When we read about the kings, we know that they're pointing us to a better king to come. Right? That, that ultimately, uh, that they are a reminder. Like I said last week, every time God anointed one of those kings, and that oil runs over his head, it was a forerunner. It was pointing ahead to the anointed one. Who would come? The ultimate anointed one, the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one of God, the Christ, who would ultimately come and rule and reign and rescue God's people. So this points us to Jesus, the son of David, the Messiah, who would be born into this world. He wouldn't shout champion with his looks, right? He didn't have a, some sort of um, halo over his head. Everybody didn't look at him, as we talked last week out of Isaiah. Everybody didn't look at him and say, oh, he's clearly the Messiah, but he would be God's anointed the ultimate chosen one of God. His brothers would criticize him. If you read the Gospels, they're actually, they actually try to get him to quit at one point and come home. They think he's out of his mind. God's enemies would mock him, and he would go to the cross. He would die for our sins, and he would rise from the dead, rescuing all those who put their faith and trust in him from sin, from death, from hell. He would defeat Satan, 
crushing his head as Genesis prophesied. David is here pointing us to the better anointed, to the better king, to the ultimate king, to the Lord Jesus Christ. We aren't primarily David, but in need of a David. We are in need of a champion. We're in need of a true king. The first application of the story is to realize you are the one who needs rescue. To realize there are giants called sin and death and hell that you can't defeat and that the way to victorious living in life and in the Christian life is not simply to be like David, but to be saved by the one who's better than David, by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings us to our third application. We must walk in light of our king's victory and boldly live by faith in the Lord. See, when, when did Israel finally change and get bold? When did it happen for Israel? When did they finally become victorious? It was after David killed the giant. In verse 52, when the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout, right after David ends this battle, after he kills Goliath, they rose with a shout and pursued the Philistine as far as Gath, right, in the gates of Ekron. And it goes on to say, the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. So they, they go out, man, they're chasing the enemy now, running after them, taking them out, plundering stuff. And like Israel, we need to, by faith, learn to live in light of our king, our champion's victory. You can't live um, like you're victorious until you've had the victory of Christ applied to your account. Remember, this was a representative battle. If David wins, Israel wins. If Goliath wins, the Philistines wins. That's the challenge that's been issued. So when David won, his victory was to be applied to all of Israel. Now the Philistines are not going to seek to abide by Goliath's challenge, they're going to continue to be, you know, they're going to always try to, try, you know, they're going to try to be a problem. But in this moment, we see Israel triumphing. David had won, so Israel had won. See, Christ is our representative. Christ is our representative. And just as through Adam we all sin, through Christ we can all live. This is, this is what Christianity is all about. Jesus lived a righteous life in my place, died a substitutionary death in my place, and that I can be forgiven, I can be redeemed, I can be transformed and given new life through faith in Christ because he substituted himself in my place. I get his righteousness. He took my sin and the judgment and the wrath that I deserved. So, through faith in him, I win. I get to share in his victory. I'm a victor through Christ. Here, here's the deal. Christ went to the cross for us. Christ defeated sin, death, hell. Christ has accomplished what we could never accomplish. And through faith in him, when we look on him in faith, we become victorious uh, because it gets applied to our account. We're, we get his righteousness. And, 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 and we are only victors and we're only triumphant because of Christ. And it's through faith in Christ that we triumph over sin, death, and hell. And then we're supposed to practically live like that's true. See, Israel does that as they chase the Philistines and begin to plunder. They are transformed by David's victory. And we should be transformed by Christ's victory over sin, death, and hell. For example, 1 Corinthians 15, 56 and 57 says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have victory through Christ. Romans 8, 37, Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 1 John 5, 4, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world. Our faith. Our faith in who? Christ. See, we can live victoriously over sin only because of Christ. We can endure and live for God's glory in the face of adversity and suffering 
only because of Christ. And daily, we need to look to him, gazing at the gospel and living in light of what Christ has done. We live victoriously. We triumph over fear. We endure trials. We triumph in the midst of temptation and and live victoriously. We kill sin and put it out of our lives through applying who Christ is and what Christ has done on our behalf on a daily basis. Living like the gospel is true. And this should lead us to live with radical and bold faith in God. And this is where David is an example to us. He sh- See, Goliath, as it's been pointed out, shows us the world's way to live. David shows us God's way. David is one who, who lives by faith. Goliath is one who only lives by faith in himself. Dr. David Prince writes this, quote, Goliath is the epitome of self-reliance and self-confidence. But that is why he is the representative enemy of God. He is the ultimate contemporary worldly hero. He looks and sounds invincible and he possesses every technological advantage he is the poster child for self-esteem positive thinking and an if you believe it you can achieve it worldview isn't he have you ever thought about it that way how goliath is all those things he's arrogant self-assured living by human power but he's an enemy of god he's an enemy of god and david he trusts not in himself but god David shows us God's way. Goliath shows us the world's way. Saul and Israel, they show us what it looks like to live associating with God's name but failing to trust in him. And David shows us what it looks like to live by faith. See, David's faith was not in himself but God. It wasn't faith in faith. It wasn't faith in self. It was faith in God. He simply trusted the Lord. And life is meant to be lived radically dependent upon God and his power and with passion for his glory. And the only way to live with this kind of bold faith is to live in the power of the Spirit. Let's not forget that when you go back to chapter 16, the chapter before this, what happens? Where do we leave off with David? Last week, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him from that day forth. David is one who is being filled, uh, he's being empowered by the Spirit of the Lord. The life of faith and the Spirit-empowered life are linked. And you can't live by faith apart from the Spirit. And if you're filled with the Spirit, you will live by faith. And that's how God calls us to live. As those who have been redeemed, as those who have been rescued, man, when we come up against challenges, when we face temptation, when we face trials, when we face difficulty, when we face giants, we look to Christ as our victor. We rest in the fact that He has defeated sin and death and hell. And we are confident in him. And then we apply, that has been applied to our account. And we are victorious through Christ. And then we go and we live by faith in our God. Let me ask you, have you realized your need for a champion today? Have you looked at life and thought, I can do this? Have you looked at death and thought, I can handle it? Have you looked at your sin problem and thought, I can handle this? Or have you become to realize I don't, I don't, I can't handle my sin problem. Uh, there, there are problems that I, I can't handle. Uh, I don't want to face God alone, judgment alone. Have you looked to Jesus by faith and said, rescue me? If you haven't, I encourage you to do so today, to call out to him, to ask him to save you, to put your faith and trust in, in him. The Bible says, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord should be saved. If you put your faith in Christ, 
who loves you, who laid down his life for you, who rose again from the dead. If you'll trust him, you can be saved. And I'd invite you to do so, to turn from your sin and put your faith in Christ. And if you've got questions about that, email us at info at gonorthpark.com. If you, if you pray to receive Christ today, then let us know so we can celebrate with you and help you in any way and pray for you by emailing us at that same email, info at gonorthpark.com. I encourage you, run to Christ today. And believer, are you living in light of Jesus' victory? Are you living like when he won, you win through him, through faith in him? Are, are you living with radical trust in God today? Are you, like, are you living by faith? Whatever you face today, whatever you face, the key is look to Christ. The key is trust him, to be filled with God's spirit, to live in faith in, in, in God and his promises, to trust in the champion, the, the true king who has rescued you, not to try to go and do it on your own, to, to realize that the, the way we get courage and courageous faith is by looking to Christ and what he's done for us and living in the power that he gives us. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are grateful today for this great story, and we're grateful uh, for our king that it points us to, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what he's done for us. And God, I pray uh, that you would help us to uh, to, to, to grow in our faith in him, to trust him more and more. And I pray for anyone watching who's never put their faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, that they would do so even today, that they'd turn from their sin and embrace Christ as Lord and Savior. And I pray for every believer, Lord, whatever we're facing, that we would understand that the, the, the biggest thing we've ever faced is our sin problem. It's the threat of death and hell. And Jesus is victorious over all that. He has slain those giants in our life. And th through faith in him, we can be victorious. And so help us to be people who live with radical trust and dependence and faith in you, Lord. To not live by the world's means. To not put our faith in ourselves, but to put it in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.